why bother with that? You have experience, your partner had experience. Why go to an accelerator? We thought we needed to. We didn't know better at the time. We thought that they were going to give us lots of advice on how to scale a business, how to get investors, how to do sales. Basically, they were just focused on pitch decks. The, it was like a PowerPoint bootcamp. <laughs> hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Let's do it. Today is going to be a ripper. I think the general theme of this year on this podcast, at least from my perspective, is how to get out of that low to mid seven-figure slump and get to eight figures. In other words, how to think beyond the six and seven-figure lifestyle business and how to grow something or build something that has at least the potential to get to eight figures. And today's episode is going to be about that. But on last week's episode, I jumped on the mic and said, hey, crack open your iPhone, your Palm, your Blackberry, your Android, your flip phone, whatever you're using, type in Dan at Tropical MBA in the send field and send me an email about what you'd like to hear on the show. And shout out to you guys. Those emails were amazing. Obviously, we have a lot of thoughtful, engaged listeners, but it really comes through in the way you guys are thinking through your emails. So I, I can't promise you much except that you're going to have a team here at the Tropical MBA podcast that just cares about your ideas. They're interesting. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is listeners who were asking about topics beyond that theme, like, hey, Dan, I'm really interested in your thoughts on solopreneurship right now. Like, If you were to go back and have no staff, you know, how might... I or you approach that, or just people, listeners throwing curveballs at it. I'd love to hear you guys talk about this, which is not what you've been talking about recently. And like uh, Jeff said a few episodes ago, it, it's so hard to figure out what others think is worth you talking about. And so you guys writing those emails is just awesome. I just want to thank you for that. And I'll offer a prompt. Something I've been thinking about a little bit this week is benchmarking and comparing yourself because... We all do it, and there's sort of this unprecedented moment in time when we can benchmark our businesses and our processes against so many different people out there. And that's both an opportunity and often can be an opportunity for growth. We all see that where you can make these incredible connections or learn from people you'd never be able to learn from before. But also, it can create a lot of anxiety, but also it can have a negative effect where you're comparing yourself so negatively, like, hey, I'm so far behind the ball that maybe I shouldn't just get started, and it can create like a negative cycle of thinking. So if you're particularly bad or good at, at this benchmarking idea or comparing yourself, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to share some of your thoughts on the show um, and do an episode about that topic specifically. I thought about it because you know, I've heard it from highly successful friends who are sort of down on themselves. Um, even in my own case, you know, we had our best month ever in March, and there's part of me that's extremely proud and we are very focused every day. But I have to admit, there's also part of me that compares myself to others and says, I'm, I'm really behind right now. I need to keep going. And maybe that tension is just part of being an entrepreneur. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that topic and create an episode around that. 
All right. Today's episode is a conversation with Alex Panchich, who's currently based in Miami and was a speaker at our recent event in Playa del Carmen. He is the co-founder of Upshift. You're going to love this. It's a company that Alex said from stage, he's like, why are you guys competing with each other? You guys are so smart. Go compete with people who don't even use email addresses yet. And Today's episode is that story of Upshift, which connects on-the-ground staff, say for U.S. hospitality venues, on a W-2 basis. So those of you not familiar with American practices, that means that Alex's staff are not contractors like Uber, for example, but they are employees of Upshift. And so they cover things like healthcare benefits and also enable them to have a lot more autonomy in their lives. So to give you an idea of the scale... Check this out. The Upshift team, the internal team running the whole operation, is currently around 90 employees, up from 20 just a year ago. And they have interesting equity options, which we're going to get into in today's episode. That was a theme that was particularly interesting. Like, how do you do this equity sharing at the lifestyle business or like the non-Silicon Valley bootstrapper model? Upshift also has around 70,000 Upshifters, that's their on-demand staff, on the books. So basically, as you'll hear, they can log on and look for work in their area, pick up some extra money, pick up some extra shifts at the hours they want to or can work, depending on what's needed. And uh, that's that some of that internet autonomy that Alex's team over at Upshift is bringing to those who are working IRL. So let's get into it. This conversation was wide-ranging, inspiring, and definitely took a ton of notes from Alex about how to hopefully take our business to the next level. So let's just jump into it where at the beginning of the conversation here, Alex is describing some basic cases in which his clients would hire upshifters from their platform. There's two main scenarios. One of them is for clients who intermittently need lots of staff. A good example of that would be like the Miami Heat. So Miami Heat, whenever they have a game, they need front of house staff for hospitality, back house staff for hospitality, and they need ushers. And traditionally, they would try to either maintain a pool of their staff that they could call, or they would use temporary agencies. The issue with the temp agencies is that you call them, you tell them you need 50 people, They will then call a bunch of people and hope that people show up, but no one knows if anyone's actually going to be there. And with Upshift, they know exactly how many people are actually coming in. And we vet all of those people pretty thoroughly who become Upshifters. How did you go W-2? Because it seems counterintuitive. I've worked for a temp agency myself. That was my first job when I moved to California. And it seems expensive, unnecessarily so, and that maybe you couldn't compete with people who aren't doing it. It's like selling cigarettes on the street or in a store. You could sell them on the street and get around the taxes. And it's more expensive to pay the taxes, (laughs) but how many cigarettes can you sell on the street versus in a store? And how long are you going to do it before you get caught? The bigger you grow, the more likely you get caught. Alex, I think your story is incredible. But to give some context, I'd like to start with you as opposed to the business. Could you reel us back to, you know, where you grew up and what were some of the earliest entrepreneurial seeds for you? Yeah, so I I grew up in Akron, Ohio. My mom's from Indiana, my dad's from Serbia, immigrant. And growing up, we always had rental houses. My dad is a software engineer. My mom's a realtor. They invested in the rental houses as a business that they thought would put them through retirement. And then when I was 15, that's the age in Ohio where you're allowed to start working officially, even though you can't drive. My mom said, all right, you need to get a job. Now you're 15 and just drove me to a grocery store and said, you need to fill out an application. 
So <laughs> I, I did. I started working out. I was 15 at a grocery store. I worked there for the next six years on and off throughout high school and college. And I was going to university for political science and Russian. Those are my two majors. And I was initially planning on going, you know, into corporate world or into the intelligence sector because family on my mom's side, a lot of them are in the intelligence sector. And I went to Russia for a little while and thinking that it would help me get a job at intelligence because that was what I was told. And then the background check provider, the government had contracted for intelligence background checks, ended up they weren't doing them. So the government had to take them back and intelligence checks for people who lived abroad went from one year to like seven years. So there's no way I could work in intelligence. So that avenue was closed off. And I did a couple interviews, like corporate interviews with like Accenture and Carfax and American Airlines. And just every time I walked into their offices, I just wanted to run out. So when I was in Russia, I had started an online news publication because I was told that writing would help me get a job in the intelligence community. And I went to Macedonia to visit some of our writers and I met there my eventual co-founder of, of both businesses, Nick Jordanovsky. And he was telling me where the wages were in Macedonia for web developers. And in my head, I was thinking, well, if wages are here and prices are here, there's probably some room to arbitrage. And so we opened the business 50-50. He stayed in Macedonia to hire and manage developers. And I moved back to the U.S. to start selling websites and mobile apps. And we got it to a six-figure business within like three months of starting, which is how we met co-founder of Upshift. Steven Evsky, who was one of our clients for websites. He had about eight bars and restaurants, some salons and other things that we started making websites for. It is interesting. I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on this idea of travel itself leading to business ideas. I love this Kevin Kelly quote. He said, if your environment is sufficiently interesting, creativity is the same thing as discovery. And it sounded like you discovered things when you were in Russia, Eastern Europe and Macedonia. How did they occur to you? I agree. Travel is huge. I mean, part of that is seeing how things are done differently in different places. The other is meeting people who think differently, people who are talking about different things. It's really difficult to be creative and have lots of new ideas if you're never talking to new people. You can get ideas from the internet and from reading online, but at least for me, I get some of my best ideas just from listening to people or talking to them. So I think a big part of travel is that. And then also just constantly putting yourself in situations where you have to think. Like life in Ohio is just so easy compared to a lot of places in the world. And I actually <laughs> prefer places that aren't quite as easy, at least at this age, because I feel like it keeps my brain moving. And for me too, languages, I really like learning languages. I find when I'm like switching between languages in a given day, my brain feels a lot more active than when I'm not. So Alex, if I would have called you, you know, a few years ago when you guys were doing this agency, it would sound like a very tropical MBA story, you know, a very DC story. Here's a guy who hired some Macedonian developers and now has an agency and he's really doing great. But that's not the story. The story is, is you guys are doing temporary boots on the ground staffing agency at the nine figure scale. Can you help to identify what were some of the things that came along that galvanized the decision to move into local staffing? Well, I, I think the biggest one is meeting Steve, who's the CEO over at Upshift, one of our co-founders of Upshift. Steve's about five or six years older than me, I think six years. And when we met, I had just started this agency. I didn't really understand business that well. It was something I had never studied. I just started doing it. And Steve is someone who is a student of business. He had been really interested in it from a young age and reading about it way more than me. Before I met him, I think I was probably focused too much on flashy stuff, focusing on press releases and social media posts rather than actually doing things. The other thing 
that he introduced me to is the the books that he was using to study business and the things and people that he was following. So a lot of times when I talk to people in the DC, like the about books that they're reading, most commonly I hear about books about spirituality or like self-development or motivation, that type of stuff. For me, I don't get motivated by that. I, I just want to go out there and build things and I don't need to read the books to get motivated. And it's okay. I know some people just gets really excited, but what I needed was books about people who had built stuff. And so he was able to show me like, a uh, really good biography is about the guys who built Home Depot. Sam Walton's biography is not bad either. Les Schwab, he built a big tire business in the Northwest. And a lot of people don't know about it, but he had one of the best incentive systems I've ever seen for his employees at his tire shops. He set it up so that every every shop was set up as its own P&L. When you opened it, though, a certain percentage of your costs were covered by corporate. So I think like at the beginning, it was like 80% of your costs are covered by corporate. So even though you don't have a lot of customers at the beginning, you're still somewhat profitable. But that part covered by corporate goes down over the course of six months. So you got to go out there and get people to come into your tire shop or you're going to start losing your bonus. And I think what's smart about that is it gave people a taste of what they could get at the beginning. And if they wanted to keep getting it, they had to keep working. I think sometimes you don't give people any taste at the beginning. They feel like it's unattainable and they don't reach for it. And if you make it too easy for people, they just get comfortable. And you have to give people a piece of the pie. If you can give people equity and your goals justify it. Sometimes your goal is just a lifestyle business. In that case, you know, it doesn't matter. But if your goal is to grow into something pretty large, like you need to give other people a piece of the pie. The entire pie is going to get bigger. So your piece is going to be worth more. It's absolutely worth doing from a selfish perspective. But from a non-selfish perspective, having a business where everyone feels like an owner is very different from one where everyone feels like an employee. What are some basic principles in determining pie size. There's this kind of idea, you know, that I have a fear of giving away equity that you would like give it to the wrong person under the wrong reasons. So you'd make a strategic mistake. You can't take it back. How does that work? How would you think about that thinking bigger? Oh, uh, well, I'll address the second point first. So in terms of worrying about taking it back, when we give out options, we don't give out actual equity because that's a taxable event and people don't want to pay taxes until they're actually going to make money. The way that options work, at least with us, is we have it on four-year vesting. So you're going to earn it over the course of four years. You're not going to get it all immediately. If we sell or we IPO, it does vest immediately. So people aren't going to get screwed over if those things happen. But we want people to be keyed in for long term. But the other part of that is if you have to part ways with someone a year in, they're losing the stuff that's unvested if they just resign. And generally, that person, when they leave, is going to need to sell that back to the company. And so you get to keep it when they leave. You're obviously going to have to pay for it, but they provide a value of working for you. And if you fire someone for cause, it's like you could be comfortable talking about it in a court of law. You can just strip it all from them based on your stock option plan. So our stock option plan is set up that way. Like if we were to find that someone was embezzling money, for example, all of their options would be stripped immediately. As a rule of thumb, what percentage of your company would you consider giving to your staff? I don't think there's a top percentage. Every year we give out more and more. So every year we're adding to the employee pool and giving it to employees. And the three co-founders are by far majority owners of the company. So every year we're taking some of ours and giving it to the employees, but they are contributing a lot every year, you know, more and more of the sweat, higher percentage is their sweat, not our sweat. One of the things that we do that's different from what I see from like Valley companies. So a lot of the times like VCs love just easy. And so VCs will tell you, you need to give this job title 0.1% of the company, this job title 1% of the company, this job title 2% of the company, because that's what it says in whatever guide they were given that was made 10 years ago. 
the way that we do things is we give out options based on value. So we give people a bonus that has a dollar value. And then we know the valuation of the company because each year we do a 409A and we also, you know, go out to the market and get term sheets. And we can then determine what the price of those options is and then back into that dollar amount. So instead of giving them a number of options or a percentage of the company, we give them a dollar amount. So our investors thought it was really weird, but I think it makes the most sense to do it this way based on value created rather than just an arbitrary number. Because if the company, the value goes down, that's not necessarily their fault if they contributed everything. So they're going to get more options. If the company, the value of the company goes up, they're going to get fewer number of options with the same dollar value. Let's go back to when you met your business partner. Partially, you're describing this moment of focusing on less shiny objects and building things. When I met Steve, he was doing like over a billion dollars in sales at his real estate brokerage. He had a, a real estate brokerage under Marcus and Millichap. He was doing a ton of sales there. He had all these bars and restaurants. When I talked to him about business, he knew way more than me. Most of the people I was talking to at that time, I would consider like Instagram entrepreneurs. Like they were people who talked a lot, but they didn't do a lot. And so I was finally meeting someone who was doing a lot mm -hmm. and once he had the idea for Upshift, he called me with it. He said, do you want to do this? You know, 50-50. I was like, I need to just set everything aside and just run with this. And applied to an accelerator. Do you have a sense for your own motivation? It sounds like you have a really strong sense for your staff's motivation. I think a lot of times people, when they're talking themselves up into a bluster on Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is, perhaps they're just, it's actually a sign that they're not motivated. And so I'm wondering, what was it about this particular business or your previous venture that motivated you? Well, I mean, just in general, intrinsically, I'm motivated by building things and new challenges, both of which we get to do a lot of here. In terms of motivation around this specific business, I saw a very large market opportunity. It's a huge market, and it's a market that today is being underserved. It reminds me of taxi market back like 20 years ago, where Taxis didn't go to most neighborhoods. So even though the taxi market was 10 billion, it could have been 60 billion. And today Uber's market cap alone, I think is 60 billion. So I think it's an industry that could be a lot bigger if it was actually operating efficiently. And the reason I say that is most temp agencies have like a 30% fill rate. So if you ask for hundred people, you're going to get like 30. So there's huge demand out there that's not being filled right now. Hmm. And there's a lot of people who would just never work for a temp agency because you have to work, you know, 40 hours a week and they tell you when to work and you don't have any control over your schedule. My, my motivation was twofold. One, market is huge. We can help these businesses get more people. Two, we can help people a lot. If you look at Upshift's demographics versus Uber and Lyft, I think, I think Uber's like 17% women and Lyft's a little better. It's like, or like closer to 30. Don't quote me on that, but I think they're around there. Our workforce is 70% female. And you don't see that with most gig economy apps. And the reason is because they can't provide safety. With Upshift, you're always going to work somewhere with an on-site manager. You know, we met with their HR department. It's a legitimate business. You're not just having a stranger get in your car, walk to a stranger's house. And so I'm excited about the fact that we're allowing a lot of people who couldn't mm -hmm. work regular gig jobs, get into the gig economy. And we're also helping a lot of people who used to work somewhere part-time or full-time who prefer to now work through Upshift. The reason being is they can control their schedule. A lot of people before might've been working a part-time job, even full-time where their hours changed every week. And they didn't know until a day before the week started what they were going to be. That was the reality and still is the reality for a lot of people in the hourly workspace. They have zero control over their schedule. Whereas with Upshift, they get to choose every day that they work and they get to choose where they go too. And they can work at hundreds of different places. And how much they make is determined by how well they do as a worker. And so 
they can get better and higher paying jobs if they're doing a better job at work. And that has been a big one for me because I worked, the grocery store I worked at was union. So no matter how hard I worked, I could never make more money. Only way to make more money was working there longer. And that was something that I always did not like. And that's, I think, kind of filtered into our company as well. We promote people pretty quickly if they're doing well. And there's always ways to make more money if you're doing a good job. So many of us are inspired by like the internet lifestyle, whether it's the Silicon Valley version of that or the four hour work week version where you create internet monies. And it almost sounds like you're bringing that dream. Well, you are bringing that dream of control and autonomy and flexibility to folks who are not working on the internet. And that said, so many of us are allergic when we think about a telephone or a conversation with a hiring manager or work that isn't completely digitized. I feel like we have such a strong bias in this community to like saying strictly online. And it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity if you're willing to reach out into the real world. Oh my God, so much opportunity that I was telling people at the conference, when you're competing online in like e-commerce, you're competing with your peers. If you go into the real world, you're competing with baby boomers. <laughs> you're telling me the baby boomer who doesn't know email is going to beat you at any sort of innovative business game. They're not. I think there's a lot of opportunity in bringing technology to the real world and competition is lighter. I prefer going into areas where I see tons of opportunity and not as much competition. For me, a lot of the online only stuff, the competition is just crazy. There's a lot of it because a lot of people don't want to, you know, get into it because they think it's sexy to be online only. But I think real world stuff is where a lot of the money still is. I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that, we've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform with a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime. We've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done for you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero risk hiring option if you don't really know about the long-term fit or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors, we can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash remote recruiting. Can you describe to me how you might advise someone thinking about or looking for opportunities like this? Look at businesses in, in your local area. Honestly, like there are tons of businesses in your local area that you probably will walk in there. And if you take a notepad and just walk around for half an hour, you're going to be like, holy crap, we could have a cash register here instead of just there. We could do this. We could do that. All of these things to increase revenue and decrease costs. I think you'd be surprised. I personally am not a big fan of investing in like manufacturers because that's something I don't have any kind of core competency in. 
but service companies and companies that serve consumers, I think are really interesting. One that we've been looking at is kayaking companies because it's pretty high margin business. There's usually only one or two per city, maybe three. And they're usually operating like they're still in the fifties or sixties, right? A lot of them still only take cash. They just give you a kayak. They don't try to up to sell you anything else. There's tons of businesses like that. And one example I would give you is Topgolf. Have you heard of Topgolf? <laughs> I love Topgolf. I'm a platinum member for years. Yeah. So who would have thought you could make a massive sustainable business from a driving range 15 years ago? Yeah. No one, right? <laughs> but they went in there, they added innovation, they added technology, and, and now they're doing a ton of revenue. They got acquired by Callaway, one of the largest golf companies in the world, who recognized in part that the driving range was a place to expose younger people to their equipment. So when they became the uh, mockable older country club crowd, they would buy their expensive golf clubs. It's brilliant. It is. Okay, so you guys have this idea. What were the first few bricks that you put in place to like start testing to see if this thing was going to fly? Uh, so we, first of all, we put together wireframes and then we applied to an accelerator. We got it and they gave us 50 grand just on the wireframes. Why bother with that? You have experience, your partner had experience. Why go to an accelerator? We thought we needed to. We didn't know better at the time. We thought that they were going to give us lots of advice on how to scale a business, how to get investors, how to do sales. Basically, they were just focused on pitch decks. The, it was like a PowerPoint bootcamp. <laughs> um, so, but the valuable part of it is that it forced um, us to sit in the same room every day. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have because we had other business stuff going on and it, we probably wouldn't have made it a priority because it was hard going at the beginning. But once we got into this accelerator, it was like guns to our head. Like neither of us is the type of person who likes to lose ever. And so we were like, we got to make this work. If we hadn't gotten into the accelerator, I don't know if we would have been as motivated. So I still think it was worth doing for us. Is it worth doing for everyone though? I don't know. And then the initial testing, we, we started doing some ads on Facebook and I think we put flyers up around our like accelerators office and we brought workers in to onboard them and we did it with paper initially. We just wanted to see if people would even be interested in this. Hmm. And we got kicked out of the office at the accelerator because the accelerator didn't like having like, working class people <laughs> in the building basically. So we got an office in above the bar, one of the bars that Steve owned. And we kept onboarding these people and we started placing some people in shifts at his restaurants, just a few. And then we got our first client, which was a haunted house. We don't work with haunted houses anymore because there's too much injury risk. But I went and worked the first shift with an upshifter. I picked him up from his house and we drove there together and had to put these big costumes on our back and walk around on them. And the way that the app... So you're legit proof of concept in a goblin outfit. Yeah, I was like, I'm six foot five. This was another like probably four feet on top of me. So I was huge in this, in this costume. But basically we had, we didn't have mobile apps then. We had web apps. The client posted the shift. Clock in and clock out didn't work yet for the worker side of the web app. So I texted, I texted our CTO to clock me in and clock me out and save for the other guy. And then we manually ran their credit card through Stripe. We had our first revenue. And once we got that, we were like, all right, we need to keep going. And we found some small caterers some hotels and just kept slowly building on more and more, started adding fulfillment businesses. And then in the last two or three years, we've started to add a lot of national contracts, both in the manufacturing fulfillment industries and then also in hospitality, where they have facilities in most of the cities we operate in. And so whenever we open a new market, we've already got 50 
properties ready to go across those national clients, which speeds up our ability to grow. It's network effect at work. That's the other thing I tell people to look for if they can find it is businesses that have a network effect. And it doesn't have to be national. Like our network effect is local, but there's a lot of businesses that have that local network effect. People think typically network effect happens, you know, when their Instagram post goes viral. So how does it work in a local network? The way that it works for us specifically is when we have more workers, we are able to fill shifts for businesses more quickly and with better people. When we have more businesses and more shifts, more workers want to join. And so the more we have of one side, the more we automatically get of the other side. And it's very common that we'll start working with a client and most of their staff will sign up on upshift within a few weeks after us starting. They won't quit their jobs, but they'll sign up to pick up extra hours because most of them have two days off a week or their schedules aren't set, especially in hospitality, but they might not know until the week before. And so then whenever they find out their days off, they're picking up shifts on upshift on those days. It seems like the scale potential for your business is almost unlimited. It's a large market for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's exciting. What did you learn by taking shifts yourself? A lot. So I've worked more shifts than anyone else internally at the company. I've worked somewhere <laughs> between 50 and 100. I can't remember exactly how many. I have the badge for working 50 shifts. So I know I got past 50. But I definitely learned a lot about how our clients operate and that has influenced how we built the product. I see other organizations where product is based on best case scenario and you never get best case scenario. So working those shifts, let me see worst case. Like one example, one of our competitors was having issues with people clocking in and out incorrectly. And so they implemented something where you had to get a code from the manager in order to clock it. And basically they're assuming that, oh, the manager's going to be there to check everyone in. The manager's going to be paying lots of attention. What happens? It's a large hospitality facility. The manager's running around with the chicken like their head cut off because they're busy. They don't have time to give everyone a code. And so people weren't getting their codes. So they were refusing to start work because they couldn't clock in. Um, that's just, you know, one example of not thinking through how things work in the real world. Because to be honest, like from what I've seen, a lot of our competition is people who like went to Stanford and then basically got their first job at 23 and have never actually worked an hourly job. And they're trying to build for that world, but they don't go and look at it. So it's very important that people, I think, understand what they're actually building for. It also helped me meet a lot of upshifters who are awesome people and they're all just trying to make extra money. I knew a lot of hourly workers when I worked in the grocery store too. And upshifters are the same, just honest people trying to get their work in, do a good job and get their money and go home. But I think that a lot of the times people will assume that others are more proficient with technology than they are. And so that's what I've seen with our competitors too is... One great example. So one of them added geofenced clock-ins. So you couldn't clock in without being geofenced. What's that mean, geofenced? Basically, you had to be in a certain geographic area. And, you know, working with hourly workers, I know that like a lot of hourly workers don't have data. They only have Wi-Fi or only use Wi-Fi. Or if they have data, it usually expires like first or second week of the month. Not always, but a lot of the time. And so like when we set up our clock-out systems, I said, guys, we have to have a way for them to do it with just text messages. And so people can clock in and out with upshift, which is text messages. Some of our competitors who don't have that, where it's just like internet clock-ins, a lot of their people aren't clocking in and out. And so they're having issues with people getting paid correctly because they can't do it because they don't have internet. And uh, the other thing that happens is they get to the client work site and they start asking the clients for Wi-Fi, which clients hate because it's not their job to pass out Wi-Fi passwords. <laughs> it's their job to get the line going. So 
I, I think it gives you a lot of insights getting out in the field and working with actual clients, working with actual people. I don't get as much of a chance to do it now as I did in the past. I just don't have as much time as I did. But I think it was hugely valuable, and I hope that in the future I'm going to have more time to do it. It's super easy to over-engineer. What do you say to internet keyboard warriors who say, yeah, but if I build a business like this, I'm constantly going to be worried about what's happening on the ground in Memphis, and that's not the internet lifestyle. That's not the digital nomad lifestyle. Whether it's in Memphis or somewhere else, I don't think it actually makes that much of a difference. Unless you're investing in a business where you physically have to be there and you're not okay with working remotely. But like me, for example, the, part of the reason I started the first company was because I wanted to be able to live kind of a digital nomad lifestyle. But I, the first five years of Upship, there was no way for me to do that. I really needed to be boots on the ground and make that investment in person to make it happen. But as soon as we were at a point leadership wise where I didn't need to be there in person anymore, I started living the way that I wanted to. So you also have to make that decision I think one of the greatest strengths of good entrepreneurs is delayed gratification and people who fail a lot of the times are the people who want everything now. If you're trying to have perfect lifestyle for your whole life, you can build a good lifestyle business. You're not going to build a massive business. Probably there's going to be some time period where you have to give up some of the things you want to do in order to push the business forward. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, I think it's a big problem, honestly, for people coming up that, like you said, they, they want everything to be perfect right out of the gate. and a lot of entrepreneurship is enduring the things that others aren't willing to endure so that you get the benefits, you get the margin. If you don't talk to real people and you always need to do it through a text message from the opposite side of the world, you're wasting your time in a meaningful way. What challenges are you guys facing now? So you brought on a CEO, COO. Your growth is absolutely meteoric. Yeah. Fast. <laughs> Pretty impressive. What do you feel like, what's your Peter principle this year? Where are you banging your head against the ceiling saying, man, I really got to figure this one out. Uh, we definitely need to uh, figure out product. I, most common feedback I hear is it's easy and simple, which is exactly what I want to hear. Uh, but I'm the only person on the product team. And I also run a lot of other areas of the business. So a lot of what I'm not a lot, but part of what I'm working on now is building out a product team. So we were trying to hire in the U.S., could not find anyone. We were offering a pretty high salary with not a ton of experience and weren't fine qualified people. And based on what a recruiter told us a good salary would be, we decided instead to hire in Europe and we were able to find two good people very quickly and they're going to start training next month. So right now I'm working on how can we set up frameworks for the product team? I want to set it up so that people can think and do things on their own autonomously without me. And in order for them to do that, that means they need to know how I think and how we think as a company. And so I'm working on setting up frameworks now for uh, how we think about how we do upshifter features, how we think about how we do business features, how we think about features that affect all three sides of the, the equation. So we have three stakeholders, the internal, the company, clients, and then workers. One of the parts of our ethical framework is going to be about the fact that if only one of those parties are winning, it's probably not a good feature. And I think that's one of the things where like Uber, for example, went wrong, where they were really focused on things that were only a win for the company and they weren't thinking about the other two stakeholders. And I don't want us to go wrong on that. I want us to make sure that we have an ethical framework for the product team in place where they're always having to justify how this is a win for at least two of the three parties, if that makes sense. Yeah. It must be tempting to want to throw your new product guys uh, and gals into the field and have them go do a bunch of shifts themselves. 
if only the U.S. government would let us. It's super hard to get a visa for any. I, we can't even get tourist visas for our people to come here for our conference. Yeah, but I, I would love to to do that. And we will bring them to the U.S., our product people, and have them observe shifts. But we won't be able to have them work, unfortunately. And one of the things I think you speak with a passion about your product as someone who's been a temp worker and been in a lot of working class situations myself. Often for the workers, there's a lack of dignity in these situations that it sounds like being armed with an app, a W-2, that upshifter moniker and identity has like a revolutionary potential for their careers by employers. One dynamic that we have seen at play is that a lot of people got jobs after the recession, maybe a little bit before uh, early jobs, and they just stuck. They were loyal and they shouldn't have been. They were at restaurants paying a minimum wage, other businesses paying them way less than they should have. And now those people get on upshift and they're like, what was I doing? <laughs> I've interviewed multiple upshifters who went from making like $9 an hour to like 17. They're the same person. They didn't change. The only thing that changed is their access to opportunities. And I think that's powerful. People need to have a transparent labor market if the labor market's actually going to function. And in the past, it has not been transparent. Like most job postings still don't have pay on them. How do you know yeah. if it's a good job or not if you don't have pay? Hourly job postings usually don't have pay. They don't have the hours you're going to work or the days you're going to work. Like, how are you applying to a job without knowing those things? It's difficult. So people just aren't doing it. They're just going through upshift instead because they know exactly when they're working, how much money they're going to make. And they have the power. In these traditional relationships, like the manager could say, hey, you're going to get fired if you don't come in on Friday. You're missing your mom's funeral, but you have to come in. With upshift, they can just say, hey, I'm not going to pick up a shift on Friday. Like, you can't tell me to. And you can see the sentiment in the anti-work subreddit, right? This movement that's been growing. And it's almost like you could just put your logo at the top and say, we have a solution. Potentially. I mean, people who want to better themselves will like it. It seems like anti-work is very just negative in general. Yeah, totally. Like, they don't really focus on any of the positives. I, I think there are definitely companies that are out there exploiting people. It's a thing, but I think a lot of people are trying to do the right thing. They're totally. not being shown there. And I think a lot of managers want to do the right thing and have their hands tied by a corporate that's not letting them. And it's just, it's really hard to pick out who the bad person is there, but it's not a great situation. And I think what we're doing is changing the narrative because it's giving managers and corporate an incentive now to rethink how they do things. I can give one example as a hospitality provider was paying like eight bucks an hour to people in Ohio for years. And we didn't work with them because they paid too low, but they lost most of their employees to us. Some came over and started working for us. And eventually they reached out to us. They fired their HR person, brought in a new HR person. She reached out to us like, how are you getting people? Can you help us? And we walked them through things that they could do better. And now they're actually paying like above market wages. They're retaining people. They were doing a lot of things that were just set as policies in the 90s that no one ever changed. One example of that is they they would call people in like same day and say, you have to work or you're going to get a, a, a mark on your profile. And I guess that was left from back, like in the recession, when you could do stuff like that. But that doesn't work today. And this HR woman didn't even know. It was something that people at the sites were doing. She was at corporate. She didn't even know they were doing it. Alex, one more question for you. And I really appreciate your time. This is just super fascinating. It's really been fun to get to know you a little bit better. A lot of times I'll ask people what advice you have for the 20% of the audience who's hoping to grow a business. But maybe I ask instead for... I think so many of us in the community are thinking about growing something bigger and up-leveling our thinking and going after a bigger vision. What sort of advice would you have for those of us who are feeling motivated to be more ambitious? 
the first thing is reading about people who've done it. So if you're reading the motivational books, put them down. Go read about Henry Singleton. Go read about Sam Walton. Go read about the 3G guys. Read about people who've built big businesses because that's who you want to become. Don't read about the guy who made his money writing a book. Read about the guys who wrote books because they made so much money, they don't care. And once you've done that and you have a good idea of business, look for an opportunity and commit to it. A lot of entrepreneurs, and I was one of them earlier in their career, think that they're going to win on quantity, but you usually win on quality, if that makes sense. So like, if you look at some of the richest people in the world, they had one home run and that provided everything else. It wasn't like they had six of them. So that's a mistake I see entrepreneurs making a lot where they try to work on five things at the same time. It's just not going to happen. You got to pick, you know, one horse and just ride it. And with that being said, we kept working on the agency for about two and a half, three years after we started Upshift in order to pay ourselves something because we weren't paying ourselves salaries on Upshift until last year, the founders. So we were still working on it, but we weren't working on like active strategy for it. It was basically the existing clients we had. We were still doing stuff for them to make some money. And if they referred someone, we do work for them, but we weren't going out and looking for new clients. We were in three situations over the course of the company where we had to take out personal loans and open credit cards to fund payroll. And like the company could have gone out of business, but it didn't because we just did whatever we had to do to make it happen. And we could have gotten unlucky too and not been able to save it. That happens to some people and that always sucks, but we were all in. I think you have to be really all in if you're going to do something big. Big shout out to Alex Pantich. You can check out his business at upshift.work. It's another amazing example of you can get into long established industries and fixed geographic locations and uh, reinvent them with your internet skills. Such an inspiring story. That's it. Drop us an email. Like I said at the top, Dan at tropicalmba.com. Those ideas have been fantastic. We got a lot of ideas for future episodes, including some plans for DCBKK 2022. Woohoo! That's it for this week. We'll be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.